I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome. Hello. To the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we talk about the weekend review, what movies and TV shows we've been watching since the last episode. Move on to the main event, which is a main topic of discussion or review. Then finish up with film faves, our respective list of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic, occasionally marching backwards through time. In this episode, after a little bit of the week in review, we are going to review Warner Brother Animation's latest Scoob. And then film faves will go back in time to the 1950s and we will count down our favorite movies from that decade but first we have some sad news that uh we wanted to address that we just learned the day before we're recording this episode which is that film director lynn shelton passed away i think it was actually the night before so two nights ago technically but we got word the day before we're recording that she passed away she apparently had a blood disorder she had been feeling fairly ill during the course of the week and all of a sudden she collapsed uh let's see today is sunday so she collapsed on friday and passed away that night Unfortunately, uh, we, I felt it was worth addressing. We don't usually talk too much about those who pass away, but I felt it was worth addressing Lynn Shelton, particularly because one of the things we've done in our older episodes is talk a lot about female directors and F-rated films, and she is a director that we have highlighted uh, often. And in fact, a couple of her movies have come up on some of our film faves lists, too. I know that's the case, especially for you, Shanna. And as a matter of fact, in your in our last episode, you spoke about Little Fires Everywhere, which was one of the TV shows she directed episodes for. She directed half of that limited series. And you had mentioned that you were excited about that show when you saw her name come up. Yeah, you know, I never know when her name is going to pop up but when it does it's like it's lit up like a big flashing sign for me you mm. know something about seeing her name just makes me cheer like a crazy fangirl but i also smile with respect and anticipation to see her work she's never boring she's never the same she just always seems to have this broad spectrum of storytelling but what makes it really special is it's always featuring strong brave women mm. whether they start out like that or become that it's i have a lot of respect for how she treats women in her stories and so to learn about her passing was just so shocking because she's so special to me. She was also very young. She was only 54. And I think a lot of people don't realize how, like, 
everything that she did. She was a director. She was an actress. She was a producer, a writer, and an editor. You know, she did all these different things. Some kind of multi-talented individual. And while she may not be a household name, a lot of household names worked with her. People like Emily Blunt and Mark Marin, Kira Knightley, Sam Rockwell, Chloe Moretz. Um, and, and when you factor in the TV work that she did as well, you got people like Reese Witherspoon and Allison Brie, and, and the list just kind of goes on and on. You know, she directed eight films, by the way. I have seen half of her eight films. I haven't seen her last two films or her first film. I think maybe those first two films. I haven't seen We Go Way Back or My Effortless Brilliance, which was her first two films in the mid to late aughts. But she worked on shows like The New Girl and Fresh Off the Boat, Glow, Little Fires Everywhere, and then one-offs all over the place. So I think even if people aren't aware of her name, they've definitely seen her work. Yes. Be it TV or film. And if you haven't seen her films, more often than not, you know, they're set in the Pacific Northwest or Seattle. And what I thought was really unique, and I spoke to this before in previous episodes, about her vision of Seattle is it was it was less a tourist attraction and more this lived in space, this lived in city with neighborhoods and, and people and stuff. You know, like it felt like the real Seattle quote unquote, not, not a tourist attraction. You weren't, it wasn't, her movies weren't full of the money shots of the space needle and Pike place market or this and that, you know, that people, the iconic places that people think of. Right. And I thought that that was very, what one very unique aspect of her, her films. I, I love her film Laggies because that seems to really highlight what you're talking about. There's a road that I travel on fairly regularly in Seattle. And in Laggies, we were watching it. We had watched it when it first came out. And then, you know, I had this change in my life where that road became common to me. And when we watched it, I knew exactly where the characters were driving. I knew exactly where they were stopping. It, and what was lovely about it is that sequence is real. Mm-hmm. She has this ability to show the real, but it looks amazing every time. And it, it just seems so effortless to her. Yeah, natural, not showy. So... Uh, if you haven't seen Lynn Shelton's work, if you're not familiar with her film work, uh, do what you can to hunt it down. I hope that we will also be able to complete her filmography as well. But Lynn Shelton, you will be missed. So let's change gears a little bit here. There is a movie that we watched back in April kind of during the first three weeks or so of this whole quarantine madness that we were going to talk about in a previous episode, one of the April episodes, but that was becoming too full, so we delayed it, and then we just completely forgot about it, that uh, I figured let's devote a couple minutes to. 
And that movie is the musical from December, Cats. Of course, adapted from the Andrew Lloyd Webber classic Broadway hit. Starring a huge cast, James Corbin, Judy Dench, Ian McKellen. Help me out here. Idris Elba. Taylor Swift appears. Taylor Swift. Jennifer uh, Hudson. Rebel Wilson. Yes, uh, huge cast. You get the idea. Directed from by the same guy who directed Les Miserables and The King's Speech. Shanna, I know it's been a few weeks, but what do you recall about your impressions on uh, this film? Well, I didn't like it, but it wasn't bad. Okay, you didn't <laughs> like gonna it. I'm just going to jump in there. But it wasn't bad. All I, right. I am sure it's a tricky thing to translate. They have a fairly straightforward basic storyline the effects were pretty good i enjoyed the effects i loved the set designs i didn't have a problem with any of that it was nice to finally see the story of cats because my exposure to cats was one or two segments of the play being portrayed in a dance show that i was in when i was in i guess middle school type age well this is my first exposure to the story like true exposure to the play i grew up in the 80s and 90s of course cats was always mentioned and referenced in tv shows i would see as this popular broadway hit but i didn't really know what it was aside from like maybe the occasional commercial that would show people dressed up and made up as cats so I was very intrigued by this movie and we were probably the like 10% or 1% of people who saw the trailer and wasn't horrified and I was actually fascinated and intrigued by it. It really wasn't the worst thing that's been on the screen. Well, yeah. first of all, I should say what I liked about the movie was first the lead, uh, a I think ballerina named Francesca Hayward plays a character named Victoria and she's basically this abandoned cat that gets inducted into this world of all these street cats right and I thought like she was really great in it, her movements like she was a dancer so she knew it's how good to that move they hired right? her yeah yeah and also her her acting was was uh, pretty darn good too in fact I would go so far as to say if it wasn't this movie that was her quote-unquote breakout role, she'd probably be getting offers left and right and be a huge, like, growing sensation. But unfortunately, she's stuck in a movie that is marred by pop culture. Now, the other thing that was strong about the film was Jennifer Hudson. Yeah, I think her performance actually moved me to tears. Yeah. So she was great. That was amazing. There were definitely wonderful moments within this film. Absolutely. So I don't think like this is an absolute abomination that there weren't any good things about it. Here's the thing. I found myself more and more baffled by the film as it went on. And it's not for the reasons that most people might think. It was not for the visual effects. I actually did not have for the most part issues with the visuals 
of of these people that are cats. I didn't think that looked that terrible, as a matter of fact. But, 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 what baffled me about this movie was the thin episodic story that kept me thinking the entire time, why is this a big deal? Like, I don't understand it because most of the runtime of the story is introducing this cat, then introducing that cat, and then introducing this cat, and that cat, and this cat. It's one thing after another, and there's no actual strong story to go along with it. And then, you know, you're introducing all these characters, and most of them are shallow you know, they're not, there's not any depth to the character development. And, you know, they're mostly defined by one characteristic or something, or the fact that they're played by so-and-so. Mm. And then on top of that, the world building is wonky. The scale of things is not, it does not quite feel right. It is, is feels inconsistent sometimes. I just, I don't think they managed to nail down the scale of the cats versus the world and on top of all it all is it a cat world or is it a human world because we see a cat being abandoned by a human but then everything around them the infrastructure the businesses there's like a milk bar there the the hotels like there's all these cat puns and stuff as though like the world actually is built for cats and so it didn't like the world building in the movie did not make sense and it baffled me as well. And then on top of it all, it introduces magic out of the blue. Like there's so many things going on in this movie that like the visual effects are the least of this film's problems. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I think you make really good objective points of view <laughs> and, and they're pretty sound i don't know how long the cats broadway play is i don't know if it's like a three hour thing oh, mm-hmm. or if there's information we're missing i'm sure there is my understanding is there know? is some changes to the plot to build around this character francesca like from my understanding and people who are huge fans of the broadway musical could tell me if i'm wrong but I believe, like, the story isn't as centered on this character, Francesca. She's actually, like, a side character in the stage play. But um, from a narrative focus, they tried to focus it around this new an entry point as an entry point into this world, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, it's, it's – anyway, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this movie and make it its own main review. <laughs> but needless to say – I thought it was a baffling film. I don't think it, it was a great film, and it really left me wondering, what the fuck is the big deal about the play? I think maybe it's the music that people go after. Maybe. What would you rate the film? Oh, maybe a four. Yeah, I'm spot on 100% right there. Four out of ten. Jennifer Hudson, Francesca Hayward are fantastic in it. That is it. So that's Cats. Moving on, next, we have another 2019 movie, I believe. We were looking for something fun and light, and so we watched Zombieland Double Tap. The sequel to the film from 2009, so 10 years apart. This, of course, follows Woody Harrelson, Jesse Eisenberg, Emma Stone, Abigail Breslin. All of these people, well, what, Jesse Eisenberg and Emma Stone were on their way up at the time of the original movie. 
Abigail Breslin and Woody Harrelson were the only ones that were fairly well known at the time. Abigail because of Little Miss Sunshine three years before. Anyway, we're apparently catching up with the characters ten years later. And lo and behold, somehow they all survived all these past ten years. Shanna, what did you think of Zombieland Double Tap? I think I liked it better than the first one. I don't what? remember really? a lot from the first one. Okay. Look, okay, I love Bill Murray from the first one. Sure. But the second one I thought was interesting because it went in an interesting direction. It wasn't just a sequel for the sake of having a sequel. It had interesting interpretations and practices of the zombie world building. And it, it played with the zombies a little bit more. And I just, I liked how the story weaved all together. So that was really fun, I thought. It's almost like we watched two different movies. Because I didn't yes. I didn't like it as... Well, okay then. <laughs> yeah. I didn't like it as much as you. It felt derivative. It kept referencing the previous movie or repeating gags from the previous movie several oh, times. So, so it worked out well that I didn't remember the first one very well then. Maybe. I felt like it was occasionally predictable. I felt like the characters uh, occasionally in major ways did not act in ways that are that are consistent or make sense in the environment that they are living in, where if you separate for a long period of time, you're going to be like deathly afraid of that person being dead or you're going to be grateful to see other people again. Because of how high the stakes are, if anybody's going uh, to travel anywhere to find anybody or reunite with anybody, they're lucky if they're able to, right? And so I don't think the characters necessarily reacted in those ways. I'm thinking of one character in in particular, which I can't spoil. But um, aside from it being very derivative, mildly predictable, and sometimes hard to swallow, it is fun. It's much more of a romp, out-and-out romp than the first one. Like, the first one's a fun, hilarious, kind of, like, it's got this, like, pep to it, right? But this one, like, has nothing else to it aside from, hey, remember how fun the previous one was? It's that. We're going to do that again. So I I was not a fan of Zombieland Double Tap, unfortunately. I think it's been too long since the first movie was made and uh, I I just don't think that they were able to really craft something that made it worthwhile Uh, but Shanna what do you rate the film out of 10 oh maybe a 6 is how I feel about it and myself I'd probably be 5 out of 10 oh okay lastly we caught up with January's Bad Boys for Life the third Bad Boys film Shanna, you have a little bit of a history with the Bad Boys franchise. In particular, you're a little bit more fond of the franchise than myself. Although, we revisited Bad Boys 2 last year, was it? Yeah. For whatever reason. And you kind of did... What were your thoughts again about Bad Boys 2 after rewatching it? In a post-Me Too world. <laughs> a post-Me Too... Post being living in South Africa world for yeah. me. I, I I had a lot of anger with it. <laughs> I look at the end of the day I love I love Marcus and Mike, Will Smith and Martin Lawrence's characters. That 
I love them. Yeah. You know, and I want to see them playing around with each other. And, you know, I want to see the one threatening to retire and the other one saying, no, don't do it. And the, the constant back and forth kind of, it reminds me of Riggs and Murtaugh. So kind of from Lethal yeah. Weapon. But it's like more shiny, I guess. Sure. <laughs> so I like the characters. I wasn't sure of what I was getting myself into with the third one. I was a little hesitant to watch it, so I'm glad that you rented it. And I'm glad about how I felt about the film after watching it. I actually really enjoyed it. I can't say freaking anything about it because what this film does do is it... It's who is directing it? It's two other people that direct it. Oh, let me look that up because okay. I'm not familiar with them. They're fairly new. And you can tell these people just really love the franchise. And I say franchise because especially in this film, you can tell they're trying to get something set up for either extra sequels or spin-offs, you know. Well, Which there's a, I'm actually interested in. I mean, there's like a mid-credits sequence that's like pretty blatant about that. Yes, but I don't know what kind of media direction it's going to go into. For all I know, it could be a TV show. I'm pretty sure it's a movie. Okay, well then there we go. You know everything? This is <laughs> <Not lovely. laughs> I just, I, I, I'm aware of the news around it. Speaking about the Me Too movement? <gasps> any- <laughs> that was just for fun. You can edit I it out. I think you'll just, you you'll just, just run the podcast now? You can just edit it out. And there's more female characters and female characters that are brave and smart and really needed for the story, I believe. The directors are Adil and Bilal, uh, Adil El Arbi and Bilal Falah. They are a directing duo, and you're right. They are clearly very passionate about the first two Bad Boys movies and big fans. And so they take all that good stuff and they amplify it in this third one, which I really, really loved. Mm, okay. Anything else you want to say about it? No. If you're a fan on in any way, whether it's the first one you you love more or the second one you love more, I think you should watch this film. It's a lot of fun. I was reluctant also because I actually hated Bad Boys 2 ever since it came out. I was a fan of the first film was hoping Bad Boys 2, which at that point was long anticipated for me, would be as good. It was not. I feel like it was my it was the start of Michael Bay being let loose to his like worst tendencies and stuff. Hmm. Uh, which we would see for like a whole decade afterwards. Hmm. But Bad Boys for Life, I actually think it's just short of being the best movie of the trilogy. It it what the only thing that prevents that is one it falls apart in the third act and gets really messy in terms of some goings on in that third I act. I guess it wasn't very cohesive. And then also it has some very mixed messages about violence, especially in the second half of the movie, and also it often, especially in the first half of the movie, it acts like. We should know some of these characters that come into play. And, like, apparently we're not, but it makes us, like, the way it's played out, it makes me feel like 
I'm supposed to know these characters from the first movie. Some of these supporting kind of side characters that that come up come about in, in the first half. And so I found some of it fairly confusing. But here's the thing. Like, especially during the first half or so, it's very strong. It's surprisingly well written. It deals with some very uh, interesting character stuff. I was very impressed with Martin Lawrence, who... Up until now, I was like, oh, pff, Martin Lawrence, you know, kind of a joke, you know, like, oh, well, he's available to do a third film. I know that for sure, you know, but he's acting his heart out in this movie often. And I, I really wish I could go into detail about some of his scenes because he's uh, sometimes kind of the rock of the film, you know, and uh, I was very impressed with him. And the movie makes a couple surprising choices. It, now, I, I, again, I can't talk about that. It almost goes so far as to be like the ballsiest Will Smith movie ever by doing something that no Will Smith movie has ever done. And it's like in the first half hour or so. So, yeah, it, ha- it has some guts to it. And it does some surprising things that I didn't expect from a bad boys movie that i appreciated uh it has some surprises uh left in it so i actually liked bad boys for life it it was it was way better than i expected it's better than the second film almost better than the first film i gave bad boys for life a seven out of ten ah that's lovely i give it a six yeah you didn't like it as much as uh as me i liked it i enjoyed it Mm mm-hmm but I didn't think it was phenomenal. Sure. No, no, no. I wouldn't say it's phenomenal. Uh, just really good and definitely exceeds expectations for me. So that is our week in review. And now it's time to move on to our review of Warner Brother Animation's Scoob. This mangy stray's coming with me. He's not a stray. Okay, then. What's his name? His name's... Scooby. Middle name? Doobie. Last name? Doobie. Gentlemen, welcome aboard. This isn't about some guy in a rubber mask. I would have gotten away with this if it weren't for you meddling. This is about one of us. Welcome to the Falcon Fury! Falcon! Hang on, hang on. Turn on the lights! Where are my balloons, Didi? When I say Falcon Fury, that's supposed to cue the balloons. Oh, great! Great timing! You might want to buckle up. Scooby-dooby-doo! Maybe this can lead us to our culprit. Jinkies! Apparently he's been stealing Netflix by using his mother's account. (gasps) That is not fair for the rest of us who have to pay for Netflix. You have to pay for Netflix? Here we go! If you want, you can pull over and drop us off here. We'll walk home. I guess our new movie is an origin story. Every hero should have one. I want The Rock to play me. Never gonna happen. (laughs) And that was from the trailer to Warner Brother Animation's Scoob. 
starring Will Forte, Mark Wahlberg, Jason Isaacs, Gina Rodriguez, Zac Efron, Amanda Seyfried, Ken Jeong, Tracy Morgan, McKenna Grace, and of course, Frank Welker as Scooby-Dooby-Doo. This movie follows essentially how, first of all, how Scooby and Shaggy meet, how the mystery uh, team meet, but overall there is a bigger plot, let's say, that the gang are faced with that where Scooby becomes a central key element of this villainous plot. Very spoilerific. I'm pretty sure the trailer somehow avoided showing most of what the main story is about. So we will as well. But first of all, when we review a movie, we like to focus on the good. What we liked about a movie. Because sometimes that can be hard to think of. Before we get into the negative and talk about the bad. What sucked about a movie. What didn't work. What were its flaws. And then we finish up with spoilers and final thoughts. Shanna, you've been spending the past week or so watching old Scooby-Doo cartoons, both the original Scooby-Doo Where Are You and several of its uh, follow-up cartoon series. Well, first of all, I guess I would ask, did you have any expectations because of that going into Scoob and what did you like about it? You know, Scooby-Doo is a really cool franchise. They have so many different TV shows. They have the original to a pup named Scooby-Doo where Mm -hmm. the whole gang is kids and Scooby's a pup. They have a 13 ghost segment. They have a team up with Batman, team up with Wonder Woman show it's, it's just it's all over the place it is yes and then the movies that they release are are also kind of all over the place most of which by the way are directed video post yes. the year 2000 and also the two live action movies yes so well there's more than two but some you know one or two have been released in the cinema those are the two i'm talking oh, about. okay with right. matt lillard as shaggy and yeah and freddie prince jr as fred sarah michelle Gellar as as Daphne, Daphne, yes, yes. I can't remember. Who's Linda Velma. Cardellini, who is now Hawkeye's wife, was Velma. Oh, that's really freaking cool. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the cast was not the main issue with the movie. So here's how I tread with the Scooby Doo franchise. I don't expect a lot. In fact, I don't expect anything. Okay. I expect that I'm going to have a little bit of fun because. To me, Scooby-Doo was my first introduction to mysteries. and Oh. Yeah, you know, it wasn't always just straight up murder she wrote or murder murder shows. So I I just keep my expectations low because it's such a big franchise. It's best not to have expectations. Okay. So I didn't. So it's very easy for you to... Be impressed. To be then. impressed, yes. All right. So, what was what did you like about the movie? And, well, did and, you have expectations? Um, well, I was going to answer it after, but uh, basically, I I said I saw the trailer and I thought, well, this could go either way. This could be no better than most of those animated movies based on a recognizable property that you see out there, be it 
trolls or smurfs or whatever it is, right? Or it could actually be something decent and fun. I, uh, yeah, <laughs> that was pretty much me going into it. Did it exceed your expectations? Yeah, it totally your did. Bare bottom yes. basement expectations. That's where you need to keep it. Okay. When there's a franchise, just keep it nothing. All right. And then it, you can only go up from there. What was good about it? I love the respect that they had for the franchise with the story and everybody that was involved in making this movie. You could tell that there was respect. You could tell there was little things that were honoring the franchise and more. So I really loved that Like part. they grew up with it. Yeah, you could tell these were people like me. Uh, there were moments where, you know, the story was great for the average movie. But then you could tell there were certain little elements they were putting into the film that people like me would totally pick up on. There's a moment where there's this particular noise that happens when Dino Mutt extends his head and knocks it on the ceiling. It's a particular kind of track of music, and I recognized it. So there's a lot to, to say in spoilers. Is it fair to say that you, that you liked Oh, yeah, I really enjoyed this. In fact, I was able to almost watch it twice, which was really fun for a fan like me because then I could go back and really look and really connect with what was happening. Mm. Watching it a second time really helped me hone in on what I liked and what I didn't like about the movie. Very cool. Well, we'll talk about what you didn't like in a moment, but first... Uh, as I mentioned, I had mixed expectations. I I really didn't expect much. I, it wasn't as low uh, <laughs> expectations as as yours, but I think it really helped tagging along with you going back and revisiting the cartoons because what I liked, one of the main things I liked about this is how much it gives a big wet kiss and honors those things that so many so many generations now have grown up with i mean these these shows started out in the late 60s and have more or less continued in some form or other every single decade since and now to the churning out of the constant direct to dvd animated uh, uh movies and i think there's been a couple shows actual shows too since then but um it's it's really kind of cool how this movie references many of those it literally has the opening title sequence of the original scooby-doo where are you i wasn't gonna say anything because i so i'm so scared that i'm gonna spoil things but yes i thought that was how they incorporated that to show the characters growing up was so wonderful and just made me giddy as anything. Yes. And yeah, beyond that, I am reluctant to say much because one great thing about the trailer is it doesn't show what most of the movie is about, which is very surprising and kind of cool. I think also what's really great about this movie is it has the intelligence to question where does Shaggy and Scoob belong in the group? What is their role? What what value do they bring to 
this team. You know, you have Velma, who's clearly the, the, the brains of the group. You have Daphne, who's a people person and a bit of an empath. You have Fred, who essentially brings the alpha uh, testosterone aspect to the group, you know? But not in a bad way, I no, don't what's, think. No, what's and the I right word for it? I think he brings... Uh, I'm only thinking of male toxicity words. <laughs> he... You know, he brings the mechanical side. Without him, we wouldn't have traps. We wouldn't have the oh. minivan. So he brings the sort of uh, three-dimensional brain type stuff to the, the Fair group. enough. He could be a little bit daft, too. But I do think now that you say that, you point that out as his strengths, I wish they leaned a little bit more into him as a, as a quote-unquote mechanic. You know, kind of guy. Oh, that would have been great. That would have been interesting. I mean, we all know he loves his freaking car, but right, yeah. You know, like that's that's evident throughout everything. But I think you have a great idea if he was more mechanical. Yeah, that would have been awesome, and it also would have made him gel really well with Velma. They would have complemented each mm. other more. Perhaps, yeah. And I think also the movie has the intelligence to pair Shaggy with another character as sort of mirror versions of mirror pictures of cowardice and bravery you know one i mean one looks like he would be physically you know representative of a bravery and stuff but we learn isn't so much and shaggy is known for his cowardice right and so like having the intelligence of pairing these two characters up shaggy with this other character and creating a bit of an arc of growth uh is actually smarter than i expected this movie to do it has a, a little bit more than i expected it to have uh but let's let's talk about what we didn't like about it and then move on to spoilers so we can kind of free ourselves Oh, I, you know, I don't think I can really talk about what I didn't like about it in a very specific way, but I can say that there is some cruelty that happens in this film. I was recommending it to my family that has a three and a half year old. And, you know, they said they saw that it was PG, so they're going to wait for a little bit. And I'm glad that they did because there is some cruelty in there. Sort and of. I feel like maybe five is a good age for this film, in my opinion. I don't think that's unreasonable, but I think it's important to stress that what you're referring to is maybe only a notch more. Like if you're thinking in terms of a dial, maybe a, a notch higher than what you normally see in Hanna-Barbera cartoons. And you just see it in this uh, pseudo theatrical full release. Oh, it's it's true to the characters that you're referencing with. Well, and that's mentioning. fine. That's fine. But there is some cruelty there. So usually there isn't. True to the in characters. Scooby Doo stuff. Well, mm, uh, we have to get to to spoilers, but uh, really quickly, I will say. There's a lot of great Easter eggs in this movie, too. Anybody who grew up on the Hanna-Barbera cartoons like Scooby-Doo are going to see a lot of things in the background, in the foreground, whatever, throughout it. There's a couple issues I have that are kind of spoilery that I, I we need to move into talking about. 
but um, overall pretty minor. I would say this movie is better than your average animated uh, film adapted from a known property or some childhood favorite. I give Scoob a 7 out of 10. For those who haven't seen it, uh, I would say it's worth renting on, on the VOD formats, which is how you're able to see it because of the pandemic. Shanna, what are your concluding thoughts before spoilers? I would give it a 7, and honestly, if you're a Scooby-Doo fan, I'd say pay the extra 5 bucks and just purchase the thing. I don't know if it's going to come out in a hard copy form. I think it's worth having because you can go back to it over and over again and find those little Easter eggs that you were talking about. I, I watched it with subtitles the next time, and I picked up on dialogue that I hadn't picked up in the first time watching it. So I think right. it's worth purchasing. Uh, it's worth throwing the extra five bucks in. There are definitely things that while you're laughing, you'll miss another piece of dialogue. Yeah, they move fairly quickly. Yeah. All right. So if you have not seen Scoob, skip ahead in the show notes to Film Faves because from here on, for the next uh, several minutes, we're going to talk spoilers and final thoughts for Scoob. All right, Shanna, spoiler time. I'm going to let you... Where do we start? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm going to let you figure that out first. Okay. Well, let me start with the happy stuff. Okay. I really loved when Scoob and Shag were doing trick-or-treating. They came across bad guys, bad kids who had good intentions. They said, oh, it'll rot your teeth. You'll get diabetic. (sighs) You know, all that jazz. It's still not okay to steal someone else's candy. This is America. Or pick on them, yeah. So it's it was this beautiful moment when we see Fred, Daphne, and Velma come over. You know, Fred's got his knight in shining armor costume on, and he is kind of that broad shoulders kind of guy who's yeah. there when you need him. You've got Velma being RBG. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for those who aren't familiar. I'm so glad I got that right. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's just perfect and you've got Daphne as Wonder Woman and what I really loved was as they were going after the candy and came across a bad guy how the three of them they have their stuff figured out how they complement each other Hmm. they've only just met Shag and Scoob so it makes sense that you don't know how they complement everything yet and I love the part where Daphne has her lasso of truth prop Mm -hmm. and she throws the other end to Velma and together the two of them tie up the bad guy. And I just thought it was really cool that you have these two forms of justice being portrayed within female heroine. Sure. World. I just, I really appreciated that. It's a little, a little thing. If you're not thinking about it, it's not going to matter to you. But if you are awake and trying to see you know a woman being portrayed in a different way i really love that well what i appreciate about you even pointing out the costumes is how each of those costumes are very representative of the of the character wearing it and and so like the fact i don't know there's just little things like that and what i've explained before that is just a just a little bit 
on a higher level than I expect yeah, this I mean, to operate on. You've got a good point. I didn't even think of thinking about Shaggy and Scoop's outfits. They're dressed as superheroes. What are they as dressed Blue as? Blue Falcon and oh. Dino Dog. Oh, of course, yeah. And yeah. so it's just really funny because they're like the scaredest ones. Yeah. But they're wearing the bravest outfits. You know, we're always trying to. Yeah. You know, some people want to be who they dress as for Halloween, and it's just really interesting. Well, let's get let's get to the part that we can't we haven't been able to talk about, which is that uh, Scooby and Shaggy get sucked up into this apple store looking spaceship it's ikea looking if you say so <laughs> uh the spaceship uh, that that's uh, features blue falcon and dino mutt who were characters that were in one of the hanna-barbera cartoons i wasn't able to pinpoint exactly which ones they were in if it was wacky races or if they had their own if they have their own then boomerang uh, the subscription service doesn't have them yet but at any rate so this is the first time i think unless there's some hardcore fans who can correct me that you see hannah barbera characters interact outside of wacky races um you're saying it's the first time i think so no it's not Okay. Because there's Scooby-Doo films that where they meet. Who do they meet? They meet the Jetsons or they meet the Flintstones. And I know the two of them meet each other. Yeah. But there's something out there where they are interacting with others. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I'm not aware of those. So, and what sense does... Anyway, <laughs> I don't even want to get into the logistics of it's how that happens. It's Pixar world. All right, so moving on, you have them being sucked up. There's apparently a dastardly plot that Blue Falcon is in the process of thwarting by Dick Dastardly, who I didn't know was in the movie at all and I think was was left out of the trailers. Fantastic. Very cool. He's trying... His, his plan is to collect these giant skulls and also scooby to be able to open a portal to what is this shanna that he's trying to open a portal to it's alexander the great's treasure trove i guess okay that's guarded by serbius cerebus cerebus yes the three-headed dog of course and scooby is important because turns out he is a descendant of alexander the great's dog so whose name we forget right now uh it does it is named it is but it's not that important but i did want to say one of the things i thought was a missed opportunity in the movie was when they the mystery team discovers that scooby has this heritage and they're flipping through somehow scooby's lineage there's this missed opportunity to show all of Scooby's ancillary family members that showed up in the cartoon series. Oh, is this something that you, you didn't like? This is a missed opportunity, I think. I think they may have avoided it because Scooby as seen, is seen as a street dog when Shaggy finds him. Meh. Okay. Yeah, I mean, by that logic, they wouldn't have had most of the plot in the movie. Right? 
but that you literally see visuals of his ancestors. So I guess you have a good point. They could have just quickly shoved it in there real quick. Yeah, that's yeah. what. I, that's all I'm okay. saying. That's okay. all I'm saying. They have Easter eggs of other things. Why not that? Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. That's all I'm saying. I loved how you saw in the background all these other references to other Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Yeah. So let me talk a little bit about that because I was able to pick up more on second viewing. Oh, okay. When the kids enter the the haunted house in the beginning of the film, you actually see a silhouette cut out of Fred Flintstone on the wall. Oh, good catch. And then when Fred, Velma, and Daphne are driving, maybe... They're about to turn around to go to the bowling alley because they got they heard something on the radio. As they're turning around down this busy street, you see this huge billboard that has Penelope Pit Stop perfume. Oh. And it has really cool branding. It has a really cool looking bottle that's like peas being played around with, which is just really funny. Can you explain who that is? For Penelope Pitstop is from Wacky Races. I believe she's the only female driver okay in in that little show there's actually a shot an overhead shot from afar across the street where you see a business called pebbles with a giant bone in the front did you see that on on the second view i missed it each time oh man yeah i was really disappointed that was a background thing there's are they there's an carnival at some point in the movie and there's these arcade games. Yeah. And what what are those arcade games? So the arcade games, there's a Penelope Pit Stop game. Oh. There's Hong Kong Fooey. Yep. There's also a Hex Girls arcade game, as well as a Hex Girls performance poster, which if anyone has watched the Scooby movies, Hex Girls is definitely one of my favorite straight to VHS or DVD movies. So seeing them is really cool. And any Scooby show that happens, you know, in the 2000s, they actually usually try to feature or bring back Hex Girls in some way. Okay. So that was really fun. And Laugh Olympics is also. Oh, yeah, Laugh Olympics. You're right. Which was a, it was actually apparently officially called Scooby's Laugh Olympics or something like that. At any rate, that's also an arcade. So, and then the more blatant, obvious thing is you have. You have one other thing you want to say before that? Well, I wanted to say that even though there's all these references to the Hanna Barbera world, there's also references to the real world. Specifically, when Shaggy is by himself on the beach, uh, beachfront, he's trying to flip through music, uh-huh. and it's music that we all recognize from different decades. But he yeah. lands on an Ira Glass podcast episode about friendship. And why is what why why is that ring a bell for you? Well, because I believe Ira Glass is with Fresh. Uh, with NPR. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. You don't know about I, Ira Glass? N- I don't assume that Very everybody does. Very particular cadence of speaking and gotcha. style. I was so. wondering what that was about. I wasn't really sure. Uh, but uh, I was going to say Captain Caveman oh, yeah. is the other surprise Let's in the movie. about Captain Caveman. Who is, I think, pretty well animated because his hair oh, has he texture. Looks beautiful. Not a cartoon that I remember watching when I actually investigated on Boomerang uh, Service 
what it was, but I remember the visual of that character. It was an unforgettable visual, that character design. Did you grow up with Captain Caveman? Yes, I did. So I grew up with Wacky Races, Scooby-Doo, Captain Caveman. Uh, is it Go Jabba Jabba? Jabba Jaw? No, Jabba Jaw. Yeah, so Jabba I don't know Jaw. why he keeps saying Go Jabba Jabba. I don't know. And uh, there were a couple others as well. You know, you mentioned Captain Caveman and something else that gets seen in this, that gets discovered in this film upon second viewing is Dee Dee. Dee Dee. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Before you move on, oh, just okay. it's important to note, Tracy Morgan plays Captain Caveman well, yeah, too. Well, yeah. You know, which is, seems so perfect hilarious casting. and perfect. And we're watching 30 Rock right now yeah. too, which we weren't ready to talk in, de- in depth yet about, but to see him on that and then to hear him as Captain Caveman, it's... It's kind of this weird... It totally works. Yes, yeah, totally. But I don't know if I would have liked it if I hadn't watched 30 Rock. So I kind of have this appreciation for him mm-hmm. now and think, well, this is really cool that he's Captain Caveman because Captain Caveman's this really mellow, somewhat mellow dude. You mm. know? Um, so you're, anyway, you're saying about Dee Dee, which was another one I want you, wanted you to yeah, explain. Yeah, so not only do we have Blue Falcon's son being the new Blue Falcon, and we have Dino Mutt, who didn't get to go with the Blue Falcon, which I thought was just a travesty. We've got Dee Dee, and Dee Dee is so cool. She's more kick than sidekick in this film. And it makes sense upon second viewing, because on second viewing I realized her name was familiar, and I looked it up, and it turns out she's one of the Teen Angels from Captain Caveman. The Teen Angels find Captain Caveman and they work together with each other. Doing what? Accounting? uh, I can't... It's like solving... It's solving crimes, man. Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) Like something getting stolen or whatever. It's been a long time. Gotcha. So it's just really cool how they utilized all the all these things that already exist yeah. that they already have the rights to and merged a world much like Pixar would do. Well, so Pixar I'm, doesn't necessarily have like characters from other movies interacting, but like we've seen other universe a series of universes. Yes, very well, but I'm excited about this one. Yeah, <laughs> right yeah. now. Yeah, I mean it has potential, right? And and in the in the it could have a bunch of other movies. Watch the credits if you if you didn't rewatch it with the credits because you also see Magilla Gorilla, Jabberjaw is in the credits, and at Atom Ant is also in it too in the credits. What you don't remember? Yeah, if you watch the credits, you see like these. The, it, it does all these drawings and stuff of actions uh, happening. Yes, yes, and it involves yes. these uh, these three characters in particular. I don't remember if there is other characters involved, but definitely those three are in there. And and it just kind of opens the door and gives some hope and possibility of of more of these kinds of things, and which would be cool. I'd enjoy it based on what they've done so far. Dick Dastardly, by the way, was perfectly done. 
Uh, let's talk a little, just really briefly about him and then like wrap up here. Dick Dastardly, I remember from Wacky Races. Apparently that was his primary thing. He was in Wacky Races. He was, always had some flying contraption. He had a dog named Motley that was his sidekick. And they would kind of have this like banter about them. Uh, one would be like yelled at and beaten. And then the other would be like, he was like, rah, rah. you know, he'd always grumble. He had this this particular grumble that was like a signature grumble. He'd be like, sassafras. And then uh, he would ultimately either when he was either he was sicked on other characters in the story or he would have enough with Dick Dastardly. I can't remember which one, but he would like do this chomping bite up up the person's leg. Oh my gosh, I love it. Um, And then the leg looks like it's broken. Right. Yeah. So Dick Dastardly is in this. And but he doesn't have Motley. And at first I'm thinking, oh, so he's gathering all these dogs, apparently, including Scoob. And he's going to try to create a mutt out of them. But then it's shown that, no, he had Motley. Motley went away. So I was like, oh, did Motley die? Is he trying to, like, recreate Motley? No, Motley apparently went through a portal, couldn't come back and got trapped with Cerberus. Somehow he survived. <laughs> he got trapped by Cerberus and Dick Dastardly is partially trying to recover Muttley because as shallow as he is, as much as he wants that treasure, he also wants his friend back, right? Yeah, which I really loved how they humanized Dastardly because what they did do was make him quite awful in the first few scenes that we see him mm. i mean he's he t- dastardly you he could say. totally has a tantrum and goes off at one of his cute robots i i don't think those robots belong to him because quite frankly why would they be cute if they were made by him <laughs> he must have stolen those too to disarm it's his attackers make them think oh these are adorable they couldn't possibly hurt me then they turn into like these scorpion killing machines i i have a hard time with dastardly especially when he grabs the the pole with the collar you know and then he drags scooby up and he's not worried about scooby's paws in the enclosure before the ship closes and i'm just like it freaks me out He's he's dastardly I thought you were going to say he was a dickhead. Speaking of Dick, it's funny when he's trying to tell Scooby his name. Scooby is completely capable of saying D because he he says Scooby-Dooby-Doo. Oh. And he won't say Dick. Oh, okay. Which I think is a... I think it's an escape mechanism because eventually he leaves the room. Ah, So I, I, I quite enjoy that. Uh, one last thing, really quickly. I forgot one other issue I had with the movie. It's it's a little bit bigger of an issue than the missed opportunity with Scooby's lineage. Uh, at the end, Shaggy sacrifices himself <laughs> with this mechanism of this portal. One must be inside, one must be outside in order for it to lock. Shaggy uh, sacrifices himself, supposedly. No more Shaggy. He's stuck inside this thing. There's no way to get him out uh, without opening the doors. The end. And then they come up with a statue with this portal that anything could come out of, essentially. And Cerberus, like, flicks Shaggy out. 
of it. And it's just like, uh, I didn't like that at all because first of all, why the fuck didn't like that happen ever before? I mean, anything could have come out. Why didn't Dastardly figure that out in the first place because to get Motley Dastardly out? Dastardly is a dick. I, you know, uh, and then it totally takes away, it, it makes Shaggy's quote unquote sacrifice mean nothing. Absolutely, absolutely nothing. It was completely pointless because, and they could have just been like, oh, well, you go in there and then uh, th- we'll, we'll get you out afterwards. I know that you had a hard time with that because you always have a hard time with, oh, you say you're going to do one thing, movie, and then you find a way out of it, movie, and, and then that pisses yep. you off. Yep. Yep. That Velma did keep saying... There's got to be another way. We're missing something. That sounded like so, hope, you know, like, oh, my gosh, this can't possibly be real. You know, why would an owner separate themselves from their dog? I don't know. Exactly. You don't know. They're not going to do it. So, I mean, it was Alexander the Great. He wasn't exactly a shiny penny, you know. Yeah, but I don't think he was the worst. Eh, I don't know. At uh-huh. any rate, I, anyway, I didn't, that upset you. That, that that was the one significant thing, so to speak, that bothered me. Was there anything significant that bothered you at all? Are you saying that dastardly being dastardly is is insignificant? Oh no 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 okay no, no. that that you saw that as a flaw of the movie. I just wanted them to tone it down just a wee bit. Okay. Hmm. You know, or have a really serious consequence at the end. If he was going to perform such serious, it's serious behavior. I would have liked a, a serious, like, counterbalance for it. Do you feel that he was more threatening than, like, Radigan from Great Mouse Detective or Sykes from Oliver and Company or any of these 80s uh. movies or even sharp tooth in land before time do you feel like he was more frightening than any of these villainous animated characters that you grew up with i guess he's in the same bucket you're very you're very happy about that aren't you (laughs) yeah you're like we're now in the 80s bastards let's go i'm just saying like you know there's there's movies in the past that we loved that had a certain degree of fear or edge to their characters and i would say dastardly is much more on the comical side of it than say sharp tooth in land before time what i did like was how Mutley bit his leg <laughs> and i was like oh that's good that makes me feel good and then i just wanted something else just to counterbalance i just want the balance you know all right fair enough so. any final thoughts that you want to leave uh, people with on this film i just love this film yeah, I think it's not great. It's not like one of the best movies of the year. It's not one of the best animated movies ever. I think it's certainly ever. the best theater Scooby-Doo film. Uh, yes, I was going to say it is better than the live action movies, which is all I ask for. Thank you very much for delivering on that. A little bit smarter than I expected and better than most people are giving it credit for, which really surprises me. So... We recommend you check out Scooby, or I should say Scoob. Let us know what you think. Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. All right, now it's time to move on to film faves. Now, 
Scooby-Doo is clearly influenced by the older whodunit mystery type movies, but that's more in the 40s and 30s, so not quite so much in the 50s. And and there were some animated movies that we came that came out in the 50s, though it was not a decade without its animation. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about those, but uh, before I get ahead of myself, let me explain to the new listener what Film Phase is. Film Phase is the segment wherein we talk about our favorite movies. We count down our individual lists of 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. The idea is to give you a sense of our taste in film, but also hopefully expose you to movies you haven't heard of before. So in the efforts of doing that, we also point out when movies are available on certain subscription platforms. Those are Netflix, Disney+, Hulu, Amazon Prime, and HBO Now. Often movies are not available on the subscription platforms, but they are available to rent on Amazon. So keep that in mind. Uh, But yes, this episode, we're going to focus on the 50s. Uh, Going backwards through time, the 50s was an interesting decade because you had... You know, this was the decade of Eisenhower. This is post-war decade. You had the creation of the suburbs. The urban sprawl started happening in the 50s. You had McCarthyism. And you had the Hayes Code in full swing during the 50s. This is what predated the MPAA's rating system. And basically, it was a code that all movies had to adhere to that basically had a lot to do with like shoving out sexual content like um obvious sexual content in films make them somewhat whole wholesome if you know there's violence in it then the the people who enact violence horrible violence have to be punished um several things along this line very conservative time this was the last full decade of the golden age of Hollywood. Also, we talked about in the 60s episode how the golden age kind of made way to the new Hollywood era during that decade. Well, here we are in full swing of the golden age of Hollywood. What else? You had some arise of the foreign market as Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon became an international hit in 1950. You had the beginning of the French New New Wave, and I think the Italian neorealist movements came about in the 50s as well. So there was a, a big mix, and also you had about... Half, half half of the movies were in black and white half of the movies were in color so you had a huge mix in that sense but overall fairly uh, conservative in style and in in uh, story right as a matter of fact so much so i'm curious your thoughts shanna but going into this i expected to not be a huge fan of the 50s as of a decade in film I expected, like, I was somewhat fascinated with the 60s, but I didn't have much more than 12 movies to draw from that I really loved from the 60s. I was expecting it to be about the same with the 50s. That did not end up being the case. To a very surprising uh, degree, I ended up having 34 films that could have made my list of favorite movies 
from the 50s. Very similar to the 70s, actually. Um, wow, that's a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of curious, like, what were your impressions of of the decade? Did you go into it having certain expectations? And were you surprised by what you saw? Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience. I feel really good about the 50s. It makes me mostly happy or intrigued or there's this huge admiration that I have for the creators of film, whether it's for the actors of the time, the directors, the vision makers. The, I think this is a decade that I really, really love. And it's such a great variety. I mean, for Disney alone, I think there were four animated films, either three or four. Mm-hmm. There were... You know, there was black and white, there was color, there was a lot of everything that I saw pleased me in some way. Even when I was looking at something I was unsure of, it was still interesting to learn about something like Mm Ben-Hur. It's not a favorite and I'm never going to watch it again because I don't (laughs) feel like doing that again, you know, but... It was great to watch and learn about and see how far they were pushing the acting. You know, they have a few gory scenes and I was like, wow, that's actually pretty impressive. Mm. And just to learn about the history of that is super interesting to me. So I think I really like the 50s and have uh, appreciation for it. You reminded me with Ben Hur, another factor of the 50s was the rise of the television, which film all of a sudden was in competition with because a lot of people they wanted to stay home and enjoy this new fairly new invention and the programming on it and so uh, Hollywood was trying to compete with that by creating themes and colors and spectacles and epics that you that there that you could not find on the TV screen Ben Hur was one of several huge giant all afternoon scaled productions you know with you'll have hundreds of extras huge giant sets you know everything about it was big and there is several films before ben Hur along this line that was all in the effort of hey come on out you can't see this on tv come on back to the theater check this out you know uh, that was another defining aspect of the 50s, too. And I'm glad that you ended up being glad you at least saw Ben-Hur and could appreciate uh, something of that scale, too. And length. And length, <laughs> yeah, because it's what, uh, it's, three and a half hours? It's, it's very epic. Yeah. So why don't you start us off? Oh, I want to ask also, were there any favorite years for you from the decade? You know, it's super interesting. It looked like a, it looks like it's mostly spread out. There's a couple where I have three from 1959, but it's not necessarily my favorite year. You know, okay. I have another two that are in 1950. So I think it's interesting. Otherwise, it's spread out. Not really a dominant year for you. No. I find interesting. 52 and 54 are probably the most dominant years for my list. And if I actually look in terms of what I was considering for the list, it is 51 and 54 that kind of reigns supreme. And only one movie from 51 did end up making my list. We'll talk a little bit about that pretty soon. But yeah, those those were the years that really ended up being the champions for me. 
Uh, why don't you share with us what your number 12 favorite 50s movie is? On second look, it looks like 55 was pretty dominant for me. Oh, cool. Yeah. My number 12 is North by Northwest from 1959. It's not available to stream anywhere, but is totally worth renting. I wish that I had gotten to see this again, but the reason I love it is for its exciting adventure. Cary Grant, Alfred Hitchcock, Mount Rushmore. What what else could you possibly want? It's pretty awesome. Absolutely. My number 12 pick. What is my number 12 pick? My number 12 pick is actually starting off in Disney. It is on Disney Plus. It is one of their live action movies from that decade. It is 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Yay! With the fantastic cast of Kirk Douglas, Peter Lorre, and... Oh, what's his name? Mason. I forget his first name. uh, As Captain Nemo. Is that the one James where Mason. Kirk Douglas sings about Got a Whale of a Tale to Tell You, Lads? I believe so. I freaking love that song so much. He has like a little ukulele. There's a seal. Oh, I sing that with my host kids all the time. That movie I grew up with, and it is probably one of the coolest Oh, it's probably one of the coolest live action Disney movies, bar none. Just hands down. I think you're right. You know, just one of the top five of all time. But it's certainly one of the more interesting adventure movies they came out with. And I think they did a lot of adventure movies for a period of time uh, in the golden age. There's just so much about it. It's a cool adaptation of the Jules Verne novel. And James Mason is fantastic as Captain Nemo. Kirk Douglas is charismatic and fun. And, of course, Peter Lorre is Peter Lorre. He's always enjoyable to see on screen. So I love 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. If you have not treated yourself to it, do so. It is from the year 1954, and you can find it on Disney+. Plus. My number 11 is Rebel Without a Cause from 1955. Oh, my gosh. No wonder why people loved and mourned so hard for James Dean. The character he plays in this film is so sweet, caring, fatherly, in a way that we all want from other people. And he's just a high school kid, man. So it's this wonderful portrayal of someone that's really connected to how he wants to be treated by others, but most importantly, treats others the way he wishes he could be that he wants to be, that he Mm -hmm. kind of already is. He's kind of winning at life here. Mm. There are a lot of things touched on in this film with regards to growing up. If you're a boy, there's stuff. If there's a girl, if you're a girl, there's stuff. You're talking about expectations? Um, Well, like what it's like to enter the next phase, Mm. you know, with the girl, the uh, female character in particular, I forget her name, but there's a scene at the dining room table where she wants to give her dad a peck on the cheek. Because that's what she's always done. And he totally flips out at her and says, you're too old for that. And every girl has had a moment like that. He rejects To her. some extent, yeah. yeah. But then he's like totally loving his little boy. Yes. Yeah. Apparently he's not too too old. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not right. bitter at all. <laughs> well, there is her. an age difference between there's, the two, but, but still. You know, and so there's also this look on like, well, what's, what's it like if you have you know, the nuclear family, you have your both parents, you have your parents and your grandma, you have no parents, and it's just your your nanny looking after you your entire life. 
So it's a really special teen movie and really exciting and thrilling and scary and totally relatable amongst all of that stuff. I'm really glad that you enjoyed that movie. That's awesome. My number 11 favorite 50s movie. I can't believe that it ended up this low because I've always loved it since I've seen it. But that tells you uh, how many or told me how many movies from this decade were so cherished by me. Uh, But it is Limelight by Charlie Chaplin. Oh, good. From 1952. And it's it's one of his talkies obviously right since 1940 he's he's done he had done talkie films but i think this was maybe his third talkie i think maybe there's one other movie in between if i'm not mistaken i still want to do that you know charlie chaplin blind spot thing i wanted to do at the beginning of the year anyway blind limelight is one of his lesser known films i feel like but it's this beautiful story where he is this, it's almost a semi-autobiographical because he's this former entertainer who's kind of faded. He's older and he takes care of this young woman who has the promise and the potential to be a beautiful, wonderful dancer and entertain audiences and have this wonderful, illustrious career ahead of her. But she's like, she's full of negativity and self-doubt, you know, because she did get uh, injured and she's like, oh, I'll never do this again. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. But anyway, you see Chaplin in this film reflecting on his career, imparting some wisdom. It's beautiful as a beautiful score. And you see uh, some great little cameos by the likes of Buster Keaton. In a Charlie Chaplin movie, which is fantastic. I've always delighted in this movie. It's Lion Light from 1952 by Charlie Chaplin. My number 10 is Cat on a Hot Tin Roof from 1958. Nice. We watched this a couple days ago. I appreciate the performances in this so much. And Who's in it? (laughs) It's Elizabeth Taylor and... Oh, uh, who's with the blue eyes? Paul Newman. Paul Newman. And Burl Ives. <laughs> and, and the cop from Arsenic and Old Lace. Yes, yeah. That, that was super fun to see him again. Yeah. So I really love how every person in this movie portrayed their character and was able to really represent and carry conversations that we'll, we're all going to have at some point in our family or our family is going to have around us at some point. My favorite part of this film is the determination the father has to really get through to his son, to mm. find out what is making him such a brat, for lack of a better term, and to also push him through, like, you're going to have to suck it up. You're going to have to move on, you know, and not wallow. To be clear, we're talking about father and son. And the son is like in his late 20s, early 30s. Yeah. So this isn't this isn't like our life right now. Right. He's not a teenager. <laughs> like the teenager. Yeah. No, this is like he's trying to get through to his adult son. And he's also trying. He's had some sort of medic. The father's had some sort of medical thing. I don't remember what it is, but. You know, in between trying to connect with his son because he's had this wake-up call, he's also, like, getting sick again in in certain ways, you know? So it's just 
really interesting. I love this film. It's not an easy film, but it's, again, it's one of those really intriguing ones. Awesome. Uh, that, that is fantastic. I love Elizabeth Taylor in that movie as well. My number 10 favorite 50s movie is from, also from 1952, Akira Kurosawa's Ikiru. Apparently, a lot of self-reflection in the 50s uh, really hits home for me. I really loved. Uh, basically, this is about a guy who literally spent his life with with the papers in front of him. That's all he's ever concerned himself with, right? He's a desk jockey, right? And he learns that he is actually dying of terminal cancer. And it's like this, as you said, with the your pick, it's a wake-up call, and he realizes he's never lived, and his life actually has had zero significance overall. He's even a little bit uh, estranged from his son, and so he's... He's trying to figure out, he, he kind of pals around with this 20-something girl, trying to figure out, how can I live? What is what is it that I'm missing that, that hopefully will f- help me figure out what it is I can do before I die to have some sort of purpose, to have some sort of significance in my, uh, to my life? And, and it's um, such a powerful movie on an emotional and a character and uh, and all these different ways about about the meaning of life, of, of about what are we doing with our lives, and making sure that we're being cognizant of of what we do with our lives. And uh, I love it. I love it. I don't want to carry on too much about it, but it's fantastic. 1952's Akiru, which translates to "to live," by the way, by Akira Kurosawa. My number nine is Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956. I love this one. It what is it about? It's about this alien type race that's uh, taking over the humans it's and how town, it does a small, town. a small town. It starts in a small town and it's doing it through. It, it's kind of like it's cloning itself, looking like another human. And when it looks like another human, it kills the human it looks yeah. like. So it's super interesting. It's not too scary. I love the quietness in this film. The characters have to be quiet, otherwise they'll be discovered and killed. So it's... The surviving characters. Yeah, Yeah. it's a movie that doesn't move slow, but it has this... Gives us this opportunity to pay attention to the movement that the characters are making, and as opposed to explosions like in Bad Boys 3 or 2 or (laughs) 1. You know, so it's just... It's really different. Yeah, I, I love that movie too. Almost made my list, and also a great way to dip a child's toe into sci-fi horror too, because mm-hmm. it's just compelling enough, right, with its ideas to be kind of horrific, but not so much where, like, you know, as opposed to the remakes or whatever, to be like out and out horrifying and scary. Yeah. Uh, so I love I love that movie. That's great. Uh, my ninth favorite. Are we at nine now? Your number nine. Yeah, my number nine is 1951's Alice in Wonderland. Oh, good. I'm surprised this didn't make my top five because it's always been one of my absolute favorite Disney movies. Available on Disney Plus, by the way. I think this movie is iconic. Like, who doesn't know about Alice in Wonderland, right? They probably know about this animated movie more than the freaking books, right? People have probably consumed the movie more 
more people have consumed the movie than have actually consumed the Alice in Wonderland or Alice Through the Looking Glass books, right? This, I, I just grew up with this. I always loved it. I always, it's like kind of ahead of its time in how trippy it is. You know, we're talking about 1951, and you think this thing came out in 1968. It's so odd and just imaginative in a weird way. You think, like, the the caterpillar smoking the hookah was actually like a little translation of the writers, (laughs) you know? But, yeah, I've always loved this. It's, It's a little bit episodic, but all the characters are unforgettable and iconic, absolutely. Mad Hatter and March Hare. Uh, the Queen of Hearts, everything. Love it, love it, love it, love it. Alice in Wonderland, uh, what are you doing? If you haven't seen this movie, check it out on Disney+. Plus. 1951, my ninth favorite 50s movie. My number eight is Some Like It Hot from 1959, and it's on Prime. Yay, something to rent. I mean, not rent, stream. <laughs> is this your first <laughs> one on your list? Everything else is like rentable. Right, is this uh, your first on your list that's on a streaming subscription? I'm pretty sure it wow. is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. These are diff- th- like it's, these it's are really such weird. treasures and they should be more readily available. It's weird how the 50s movies are barely available on the streaming platforms. Who has the rights to most of them, I wonder. Yeah. Anyway. This is just a wonderful comedy about two men joining an all-female band to perform. Sort did of. I get, did I, I get mean, that right? They're hiding. They do it for a reason, right? Well. They're hiding out from the mob. Oh, God. Okay, so it's even better. Because they witnessed a massacre. <laughs> oh, jeez. Right? That's the, they call horrifying. it the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Okay. So all I remember is the comedy of it. <laughs> This is one I wish I had gotten to see again. I love the performances. I love the dialogues. I just think it's really fun. Marilyn Monroe is really charming in here. She's just lovely. Was that your first Marilyn Monroe movie? That was probably my first one. And Jack Lemmon too? It might have been. Is, uh, in the previous episode, you saw you actually included a Jack Lemmon movie and uh, you commented on how much you love Jack Lemmon too. So it's kind of cool that this movie ended up on your list as well. Not surprised at all because it is really funny and a lot of fun. My next film, however, favorite movie of the 50s is 1956's The Keenan Eye. Perhaps the only Rodgers and Hammerstein musical you will ever see on a favorites list of mine. Rodgers and Hammerstein ruled supreme in the 50s in the musical genre. I was not a fan of their style overall, those kinds of musicals. In fact, Rodgers and Hammerstein may be the reason why I thought I didn't like musicals. But Keenan I was always an exception. Why? Because of Deborah Carr and because of Yul Brynner. Yul Brynner, man. The star of the movie. He has so much charisma. He's so silly and funny. He can get away with so much in this movie. And there's there's a few things in this movie that's not necessarily appropriate anymore. But and, and I will say like the, the romantic subplot is not my favorite aspect of the movie. But the costuming, the songs, everything, the set design, I uh, the acting, I love Keen and I have always loved it since I was a kid. And I have not seen another version of this story that has surpassed it. They, they should just stop trying, in all honesty. You can't beat your Brenner, folks, it's, so don't it's try. It's probably good to just leave it, leave that, it alone. That's right, that's yeah. right. So The Keen and I from 1956 is my eighth favorite 50s movie. 
My number seven is The Night of the Hunter, and this is available on Prime. I can't believe it's only on number seven on your list. I figured it'd be a top three. I'm pretty happy with my top five. It's pretty sound. It's very interesting. I'm very <laughs> curious to hear the rest of your list. So Night of the Hunter, I know you love this movie. Well, this one's from 1955, and how I got introduced to it was I went to Scarecrow, the video store, the DVD store, the whatever. In Seattle. The movie store. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... I saw, what category does this fall into? Noir? Probably. And I was like, noir crime. And I was like, oh, this is cool. And it, it's just, I love this film a lot. I, I really love this film. This is available to stream. Everyone should watch it. These children have to escape an imposter to their community whose intentions are straight up bad. It's just <laughs> all awful. And as they're escaping, they're escaping through field, through, through down river. They're, they're going through all these different scenarios. He is always close behind them with his little whistle going on. That's you right. know? So it's very creepy, very effective. The man is way in the distance, and it's very picturesque. They've got the kids close up to the camera and then this beautiful silhouette way in the background of this bad guy. So fantastic, amazing imagery. Uh, there's these beautiful, sweet sounds of nature and silence until that haunting whistle comes along. So I really love this film. I don't want to say anything else about it. I don't want to spoil it. But these kids have to get away because that guy's going to kill them. Credit where credit's due. Robert Mitchum is the man in question, and he was in his prime in the 50s. Fantastic actor. Absolutely wonderful. Did a movie with Marilyn Monroe, also River of No Return in that time. Charles Lawton, this is his one movie he directed. And I wish that he had more because after I watched this, I asked you, did he do anything else? Because I was hungry for the rest of what he had to offer, and this was the only one. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great film. My next favorite, seventh favorite 50s movie is Some Like It Hot from 1959. And yes, it is about those two, Jack Lemmon, Tony Curtis, uh, the band players who must go and hiding, pretending to be women uh, because they witnessed a massacre from the mob. The mob's looking for them and they befriend Marilyn Monroe, of course. I think it's is it Tony Curtis? I think it's Tony Curtis that's trying to get in Marilyn Monroe's pants. There's sexual hijinks. There's so much that Billy Wilder, one of the greatest directors of all time, was able to get away with here. This is one of the most iconic Marilyn Monroe performances. Uh, you saw some of her more dramatic work. She was kind of getting better and better as the decade went on leading up to Misfits, which I talked about in the previous episode in the early 60s. That would make this one of her last movies, too. Probably one of her five last films. One and it's considered one of the greatest comedies of all time. So I highly recommend Some Like It Hot by Billy Wilder from 1959 as well. Available on Amazon Prime. My number six is on Disney Plus from 1959, Sleeping Beauty. Really? Or as I used to call it, Sleeping Beauty, because I couldn't get the T right. 
Anyway, this has been a favorite of mine for years and years and years, hence why it's Sleeping Beauty. I love the fairies who are there to protect her. Then 16 years later, I love the banter between the fathers of Aurora and Prince Philip. I love the characters in this film. They're all really awesome. Maleficent is one of my favorite villains. Not so much for her villainy, but definitely for her ability to deal with stupid employees. Oh. You know, there's a lot of comedy that's in this film that you pick up on as you get older. And I love the color palette and the start of this film where it opens like a medieval storybook. Mm. And I like the bits of music that are featured in this film. And I love the end as well. Great character design with Maleficent. And another thing that is so notable about this movie that makes it so distinct is how the animation style is influenced by stained glass windows of the medieval times. Yes, well, I think they draw a lot from the medieval times in Mm -hmm. this one, you know, because that's where they're setting it. And the, the, the part where Aurora is sleeping, it just it's such a rich, glowy feel to it. Awesome. Well, we are at the halfway mark once again, and I can't believe that it's this low on the list, but my number six favorite 50s movie is 12 Angry Men, which came out in 1957 and was Sidney Lumet's first major film. I think he did a TV work before this. Sidney Lumet is someone you loved from his 70s work, Lovey. Like, I think he did Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon and, and other things. I think maybe even Network. Uh, but this, this film starring Henry Fonda and so many great character actors of the time. I think Roy Cobb. Yeah, Roy Cobb is in it and so many other uh, great people. They're, they're jurors, and they're stuck in the jury room trying to basically decide this, this teenage boy's fate, whether or not he is guilty of a murder. Henry Fonda is the one juror, the one holdout, who is not convinced that all the evidence is not circumstantial and that everything doesn't quite add up. So it's riveting. Uh, the camera work and everything that that Sidney Lumet's ever able to do with a single location, a single room is fantastic. It's the stuff that great character drama is made of, still relevant today, very well played. Love this film. I would sing its praises all the day long. 12 Angry Men is the movie from 1957. I like that movie too. My number five is All About Eve from 1950. I wish that this was streamable. I thought it was, but maybe it just got taken off. Yeah, I think it goes on and off. Oh, okay. You know, this is about a woman who is a successful stage actress that has a lot of melodrama in her life, you know, her personal life. And she likes to keep the man that loves her at arm's length. You know, she's very dramatic. She's just, I knew a guy like this, you know, that was <laughs> in the theater and had a lot of melodrama in his his life. But anyway, another woman comes in. She's a big fan of this actress and she gets, she can infiltrate this woman's life. And 
comes in to help her, to assist her mm -hmm. in any way she can. And others really her intentions and what will happen in the end, you know? It's it's just it's a really fun film in that way. It's a very satisfying film. The performances are really interesting mm -hmm. because I think it's something that my mother doesn't like about the decade where she is a melodramatic person and I just really She being the main character. The main character. Margot Channing. Yeah, Margot Channing. Played and by Betty Davis, by the way, who actually was often in melodramas. Yeah, and I just find it really interesting and Often I confuse this film with Sunset Boulevard. Oh. But, you know, upon watching Sunset Boulevard again, I realized, oh, that's why I'm confusing them. This is a really good one. It's a really pleasant one to watch. I love it. Yeah, fantastic film. Great movie about theater. Uh, probably Love Betty. I, I need to brush up a little bit more on Betty Davis's work. There's a few notable ones I haven't seen, but I love her in this movie. Also, early Marilyn Monroe appearance and the character actor we love so much who went on to play Shere Khan in Jungle Book in the 60s is a major character in this too and he's just droll and just awesome love that movie I'm glad it made it your list on your list yeah my fifth favorite 50s movie my fifth favorite 50s movie say that three times fast <laughs> it is uh, from the same year actually as my uh, previous pick 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, 1954. It's Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, the three-and-a-half-hour epic samurai saga that has been extraordinarily influential, itself kind of influenced by Westerns. Uh, and that was something that did not work in Akira Kurosawa's favor back then because the film was considered too, quote-unquote, Western, and not, not Asian enough by Japanese uh, critics and audiences but it's an extraordinary production I love it so much you get to know these seven characters so well it's basically it's about these bandits who raid a town and this little poor village they do what they can to hire they've had enough so they hire these samurai these ronin they're masterless samurai to protect them from the bandits and drive the bandits away you know it's about them all being recruited and each one has their own different personalities and and it leads to a wonderful extraordinary climax it's just such an awesome great film i love it so much i think it might be my favorite kurosawa film overall but it is top a tough competition with akiru i will say and and uh kahimusha from the 80s anyway Love it so much. If you haven't seen it, hunt it down. Seven Samurai. It is a gem. My number four is Singing in the Rain from 1952. I love this film. I talk about it all the time. The year that Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds died, uh, we watched Star Wars and we watched Singing in the Rain to honor them. And I just, I love everybody in this Singing in the Rain. I love the visual gags that they have. I love the facial expressions, the time it's set in. I love the story. The story is that motion pictures are moving from no sound to sound. And it's a very interesting time because some actresses are not quite as as wonderful as they might have thought previously when the words come out of their mouth. <laughs> so 
<laughs> it, it creates hilarity and there's just it's a lot of fun the music is wonderful I always played for all the children in my life and I just I love it so much that's awesome yeah fantastic my fourth favorite film however is available on Disney plus it is 1953's Peter Pan I think the only movie from 1953 to make it to my list, it just edged out Alice in Wonderland as a favorite, as my favorite animated Disney, well, my favorite, yeah, animated Disney movie from this decade, my favorite Disney movie from this decade. And the reason for that is as much as I love Alice in Wonderland, which I do, I realize there's so much childhood joy and whimsy and uh, iconography in this animated movie, Peter Pan. Uh, that you know, I, I absolutely love. There's the songs. I mean, following the leader, and you can fly, you can fly, yeah. you can fly. You know, so many others. There's Captain Hook, who is comically hilarious with Smee, and of course the crocodile, and yeah, Tinkerbell, who is like an icon, the most iconic of fairies in cinema history, right? Like she is so iconic that she's the thing that you almost always see with Disney's logo, right? Especially for decades, whenever like there was the wonderful world of Disney on, on TV, she was the little thing that would dash her little wand and you'd have the, the little sparkles or whatever that would come from the Disney logo. Anyway, I'm carrying on just about Tinkerbell alone. There's so much that I love. Yes, there might be a couple of things that's not necessarily appreciated anymore. But uh, there's so many other things that I love about this movie. Peter Pan is my fourth favorite 50s movie. Yes, fourth favorite 50s movie on Disney+. Plus. My number three is also Disney from Disney Plus. Really? <laughs> from 1955. It's Lady and the Tramp, of oh, course. Duh. My ultimate heroine. Lady is a loyal, determined, brave, kind pup. And she's surrounded by other dogs that love her. She's surrounded by her owners that love her. She is the dog that... She is gifted to Darling as a Christmas gift yes. by Jim Deere. That's right, yes. And that's how she that's how Lady knows her mom and dad as Jim Deere and Darling. Yep. <laughs> and then the baby. The baby is coming and she doesn't know how to respond to that. And she has a lot of help. She explores different options. And ultimately she's the most bravest courageous loyalist dog in the end and friend too and our dog's name is lady for a reason <laughs> so i i just i love this film so much i cry probably about every 15 minutes just because it's like so sentimental to me and so sweet i love the other characters shock is really fun i mean they get the animation of the dog so well yeah. in this film and it's all hand drawn and i just have a lot of appreciation for the meticulousness that went into this film awesome my third favorite 50s movie is 1952, the same year that Akiru and Limelight came out, Seen It in the Rain. Oh, there you go. Nice. Now, this is a really good example of 
how interchangeable this list could be, this particular list could be, because I half expected it to be number one, and it could have been number one, because it's just that damn good, and it's such a feel-good movie. I love it so much. Gene Kelly is the man. Donald Connor, the he is just awesome and amazing. I mean, the make them laugh sequence alone. Come on. I love that. That's remarkable stuff. Debbie Reynolds is awesome and fun. And so in, in musical segments like Good Morning, it's fun to choose in each viewing which person you're going to focus on and see how they play off the others, you know? And Debbie Reynolds is definitely no exception in that regard. And it's just such a delightful film. Yes, I also love it as a movie about movies because it is dealing with this this shift in the movie industry from silent to talkies and this realization that, you know, not everybody who was a star in the silent era had a great voice for cinema, you know, and how it plays with that and, and tries to jump through hoops to try to maintain a particular star who isn't exactly humble anyway. Uh, but anyway, Seeing the Rain, it's wonderful. It's my third favorite 50s movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I don't know what you're doing with your life. You should hunt it down. <laughs> so number two for me is Rear Window, and it is available on Prime. That's my second favorite, too. Oh, what? This yes. is so freaking cool. It's our cool. favorite Hitchcock movie and our second favorite 50s movie. How about I love that? this film so much. I, I love the, the mystery that they're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. And this is about a photographer who got too close for the good shot uh, at a racetrack, oh. and he broke his leg. So now, you know, he's usually one of those travel journalist photographers yeah. and now he's trapped trapped for, until his leg p- repairs yep you know and so he's just sitting there and he's observational in nature and he's watching i guess he's on like the third story of an apartment building Something and like that. he's watching all his neighbors because he's able to and he's across the court yeah he's getting to know them just by simply viewing them from the window, you know, mm-hmm. he's there all day. With this giant freaking lens. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah like sometimes he like pulls that out and that's just hilarious. Yeah. I I just, I get such a kick out of this film. I think that all the little stories of the, the neighbors is so sweet mm-hmm. and I think that they're all trying to deal with the heat and I right. always used to think in South Africa when I watched this for the first time, I thought to myself, well, why is it so hot in America? Don't they know South Africa's hotter? And it's like, no, it's different heat entirely. And I just, I love him. And is it Grace Kelly? Yes. I love how Grace Kelly just wants to be with him and she doesn't care what it takes. She's willing to give up everything, her hot couture and all of it. And he's just like, I don't believe you. <laughs> and it's just, it's a lot of fun. And I love all the performances, all the characters. One of my favorite actresses is in it, who was also in All About Eve, who was also in the other Marilyn Monroe film. Yes, not Josephine Hall, uh, someone else that whose name uh, escapes me right now. Well, I'll look that up while you say why it's your favorite. I mean, come on. Jimmy Stewart, Alfred Hitchcock, Grace Kelly, what else? And Raymond Burr, what else do you want? Like, this is... Uh, I think Psycho is the only other Hitchcock movie that compares to Rear Window for me. Vertigo is probably a distant third. Considered for this list, just got bumped off. Thelma Ritter, who was also in Misfits, by the way. We talked about it in the 60s episode. She's also in it as as his uh, aide. 
just it's awesome. I love it so much. It's very well crafted as a mystery. And also Grace Kelly. Come on. Like I think it's my favorite Grace Kelly film. Oh my god. She is so luminous in this film and it's like there's a shot, I think it's when she's first introduced, she's laying on the bed or something like that, and it's like, man, Jimmy Stewart, it's a damn shame you got a broken leg right now, because shit. Oh my god. <laughs> you know, because it's crazy. I Kelly. was just thinking, you unappreciative dick, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, anyway, I could sing the praises of Rear Window all day long. It was one of, I think it was our pick for favorite mystery, too, in our mystery episode. Oh, then awesome. that would make so, sense, yeah. Anyway, yeah, second favorite 50s movie for both of us. But Shanna, I'm very curious, what ended up being your favorite 50s movie? Do you have a guess? Man, you named Lady and the Tramp. <laughs> I can't think. Is it Father of the Bride? Oh, no, I did forget about Father of the Bride. That was one I wanted to watch again. I can't So I wasn't it. able to throw it on the list because oh, it's man. been too long. I'm shocked. I also forgot about desk. Desk set. You always miss up that name. Desktop. You forget everything except what it's actually called. Right. Anyway, so yeah, obviously I have regrets, you know, and now I can say them. But my number one ultimate fifties movie is it has to be. It's another Jimmy Stewart movie. It has to be Harvey from 1950. Oh duh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So. Harvey is all about Elwood. Elwood is... P. Dowd. Elwood P. Dowd. Elwood P. Dowd. Mm -hmm. Elwood is a a wealthy drunk who who starts having visions of a giant rabbit. Now, Harvey isn't hurting anyone, but he does embarrass his sister Vita and her daughter. And they worry about him. They think he's insane because he's seen things that they cannot see or understand. And it's just super interesting how, you know, you've got his sister and niece, you've got the insane asylum and all the characters involved there. There's about four or five. Because the sister's trying to put him in the insane asylum. Josephine Hall is the sister in this one. Yes. With all these characters around, slowly but surely... They start believing in the puka as well. And Which the puka is what, is. is what Harvey is. He's this mischievous Celtic spirit being that, that likes to play tricks on everyone. And I just, I love the dialogue in this film. I love how everyone's discovering Harvey and beginning to believe in him. <laughs> and it's just so charming and wonderful. I love it so much. Harvey is referenced in multiple films and shows and it's the kind of name that's so sweetly talked about by jimmy stewart that i want to name our kid harvey one day you know because it's just there's so much respect and love for that character from jimmy stewart yeah that was i think his favorite movie if i'm not mistaken and it is it is absolutely adorable and sweet uh, yet, if you watch it and dig a little bit deeper, it, it is it gets more and more interesting, too. I love that movie, too. I couldn't believe that I couldn't pick it out as your number one movie because you adore it so much. I'm glad I showed that to you. My favorite 50s movie, however, ended up being from 1956. Can you guess what it is? Well, you already said Akira. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, no. I was looking to see if there was another 1956 movie. It's the same year as Akeen and I. It is George Stevens' Giant. Oh, of course it is. Starring yes, that's really good. Rock Hudson, Elizabeth Taylor, and James Dean. This, I believe, was my introduction to Elizabeth Taylor and James Dean. And wow, and I think Rock Hudson too, actually. And holy cow, that trio, uh, acting powerhouses in this. Uh, okay, so first of all, it's about Elizabeth Taylor from the East Coast. She gets married to Rock Hudson, who's this oil tycoon from Texas. He owns more land than you can count in Texas. And he has this giant, like, three or four story house in the middle of nowhere in on this uh, ranch in Texas. And basically it's about their marriage, their time, it spans decades, you know, um, their kids growing up, and also the the character arcs of Rock Hudson's boorish very narrow-minded and chauvinistic uh, character and James Dean's kind of rugged character who stumbles upon his own success and has his own character arc. And it is absolutely glorious. I love it so much. And uh, you'll even find a young Dennis Hopper in this movie as well. But... Uh, it's my favorite uh, James Dean film and probably my favorite Elizabeth Taylor film as well. Although I do love Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf from the 60s very much. But that is my favorite 50s movie. But what are your favorite 50s movies? Let us know by emailing us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. Shanna, you already mentioned two movies you wished you could have squeezed on to your list with The Father of the Bride and um, what was the other one? Desk Set? <laughs> desk Set, Was yeah. there any others that you... I freaking you... love Desk Set. I totally would have put that on the list. Were there any others that you just couldn't squeeze on that you wished you could have? I think it, it's those ones, definitely, yeah. For me, it's about half of your list, in all honesty, but also On the Waterfront, Vertigo, Sunset Boulevard. I almost expected that to be on your list. Uh, Ten Commandments was one of my favorite epic growing up of all the 50s epics. That was the one I loved. And, and the Creature from the Black Lagoon, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and African Queen. All of those were regrets for me. Was there anything that you really wanted to catch up on that were blind spots for you that you really wished you had more time to have done so? I don't think so. I did not crave anything from this decade. Okay. Just repeats of what we had watched before. Mm. Yeah, and for me, it was really like uh, we tried. Show, I tried showing you for the, all the foreign movies. I tried showing you Four Hundred Blows and The Wages of Fear. Those didn't quite work out. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think there was a couple of things, maybe like Niagara or or something else that I wanted to see, but just could not get the the time to do so. And at any rate. Let's talk about first before the next episode where people can find us on the internet. So you can find me on Flickchart at Spellbinding A. It's all one word. I don't know what I was thinking when I made it, but there it is. <laughs> <laughs> My list is not as fully formed as Jeff's. And you can also find me at Instagram on Shanna 
underscore Paxton underscore photography. Be nice. Of course, you can check out our brand spanking new website at thegibsonreview.com, www.thegibsonreview.com. Thanks to Fashionably Frank Marketing for that website. I highly recommend checking them out for any of your online or marketing needs. We also have new logos too. Not by Fashionably Frank, but I'm very proud of those. You'll see those on the the, uh, social media platforms. The Facebook slash the Gibson Review and Instagram, the Gibson 99. Go ahead and engage there. There's lots of polls on the Instagram account, you'll see. And also on Flickchart, the Gibson 99 as well there. Next time on The Movie Lovers, we're going to mix it up a little bit because this wild and wacky pandemic has created seven different drafts of the uh, the recording schedule. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a double review. We're going to forego film phase. We're going to do a double review of Gaslight, which will be a nice segue to the following episode's 40s list, but paired with this year's Invisible Man, starring Elizabeth... Oh, we are going to watch that? Yes. Oh, Elizabeth Moss. Elizabeth Moss. So it seems like a great pairing that goes hand in hand. So a double review on the next episode of The Movie Lovers, No Film Faves. In the meantime, keep loving the movies. Oh, and, and what is the meantime? I always forget. Next time you can find that... You'll see that episode on June 9th. In the meantime, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying... Bye-bye.